Welcome, everyone, to the In-House Roundhouse, where in-house lawyers, outside counsel, and industry experts gather around to discuss current issues and best practices. I'm your host, Mark Enriquez, a commercial litigator with Wombleban Dickinson. This episode's part of a series we're bringing to you throughout the rest of 2021, focused on the current and future state of the economy. One area that's been getting a lot of attention, and I know we've had questions from our listeners about, is healthcare, telehealth, and we have two of our firm experts in that area uh, to talk to us today. Uh, Two of my friends and partners, Tony Peck and Alyssa Fleming, will be sharing some of what is happening in the telehealth area and happening with the Biden administration. Tony and Alyssa, so happy you could take the time to join me today. Mark, thank you for having us. Thank you, Mark. Absolutely. And and I'm excited uh, to talk to you about it. And I know telehealth is something that was around before the pandemic, but was fairly rarely used. Everyone kept saying, oh, maybe we'll see, you know, telehealth and not going into a doctor. Obviously, the the pandemic has greatly accelerated that trend, and that's in almost every sector of healthcare. I'm interested as people that practice in the area, what what are you seeing happening on the ground uh, in terms of telehealth and the impact it's having in the healthcare field? Tony, why don't we start with you? Yeah, sure. Um, Well, you know, to start off, let's talk a little bit about what is telehealth, Uh, because, you know, I think a lot of us never thought of telehealth prior to March 2020. Um, It's basically very short and simple. It's a provision of care by your healthcare provider through some sort of technological platform. So, you know, your computer, your tablet, your smartphone, video chat, um, even a phone call. And of course, these days we've got things like remote monitoring where your doctor through a device can monitor your vital signs. Um, All of these things are telehealth. And of course, I am sure that at least, let's say at least 80% of the population has used it if they're using healthcare services within the last year. Um, You know, Mark, prior to the pandemic, like you said, there was an interest among providers and patients in telehealth. Certainly that has risen, but there were some restrictions that did not make telehealth as popular as it currently is. For example, there were geographic restrictions um, for both the provider and the patient as to where they could receive care. Um, There were strict restrictions on the type of technology you could use. You had to have particular um, certified types of technology. Um, There was only a relatively limited list of services that were covered that would be reimbursed. So even though there was this interest, one study said that telehealth only made up about 1% of primary care visits. And in the U.S. in total, prior to 20, March 2020, it was about 5 to 10% of healthcare visits. Now, during the, um, the pandemic health emergency that you know ballooned in March 2020, obviously that's changed. One of the biggest things that's changed is patient and provider attitudes toward telehealth. We're more willing to use it. Um, the government has certainly helped, both state and federal governments. Um, the federal government has lifted uh, location and geographic restrictions. Now you can receive care in your home. We have relaxed the technological requirement there is a, um, a Zoom for healthcare, but you can use regular Zoom. You can use FaceTime. We also, of course, expanded the list of covered services. Uh, licensure was um, eased by medical boards in terms of the types of license that you needed to perform telehealth services. Um, we expanded the types of providers, not only physicians that could provide uh, telehealth services. And of course, 
you know, even loosened regulations on prescribing uh, controlled substances uh, via telehealth. So, of course, there was this enormous increase in the number of telehealth claims um, being used. Uh, one study from the AMA said it was something like at the peak of it, which was around uh, April, May of 2020, 85 to 90 percent of healthcare services were telehealth visits. Wow. Um, it's been, it's since stabilized and it's about 13 to 13 to 17 percent now. Um, but, you know, telehealth has been crucial within the last 18 months, um, especially in championing health equity. Uh, so we are now able to reach underserved populations a bit better, rural populations, um, having access to you know, not only primary, primary care, but also specialized care. And of course, we've seen the investment in healthcare, in digital healthcare, just ballooned. Um, I was reading a study that said there's been three times the level of venture capitalist investment in digital healthcare in 2020 than they had in 2017. And I haven't even seen the numbers for 2021, which I expect to be even greater than that. Um, Alyssa, is there anything you would like to add? Yeah, sure. Um, so Tony covered a lot of you know what we're seeing, but to, to add to what she has said, you know, just by way of example, prior to the PHE, Medicare really only covered about 100 types of telehealth services. And those were predominantly serving beneficiaries in rural areas and within certain geographic or origination sites. During the PHE, just to give you an example of the increase in the in the number of services covered, because payment and how are providers paid for these services, that's a huge issue. Um, so CMS actually expanded Medicare coverage by adding 140 additional telehealth services. Um, regardless to all beneficiaries, regardless of location. What this actually helped to spawn was the um, payment for telehealth by private payers, so private insurance companies. So for all the non-Medicare beneficiaries out there, um, now private payers are covering telehealth sort of similar to what Medicare is doing. And then each state has its own Medicaid rules with regard to telehealth and telehealth services, but those services have also expanded as well. Um, so I, I think these these steps acknowledge that the government acknowledges the critical role that telehealth plays in improving healthcare access. And just by way of example, some of the some of the um, services that were approved during the PHE that that are not permanent but were a major shift included things like emergency department visits, certain types of physical and occupational therapy, hospital discharge day management, you know, things that just typically weren't weren't critical care services, things like that, that just weren't weren't something that were provided prior to. And as Tony mentioned, there was a real increase in the types of providers that are allowed to provide telehealth services now. You know, typically um, all of that was governed for the most part by state licensure as well as reimbursement. And now it's really expanded beyond that to allow for, you know, clinical social workers, uh, psychologists, physical therapists, occupational therapists. Um, so a much broader range of providers who can provide these types of services. That's great. Alyssa, I know some of this has been done uh, through waivers, as you mentioned. And I know one question a lot of people wonder about is, when do those waivers expire? 
Um, is it at the end of the pandemic? Are they likely to be continued? What are you seeing in terms of a timetable? Are these things going to go away, some of the expansions we've seen? Or are they likely to, to be adopted on a more permanent basis? Uh, I know that's a broad question because there's a lot of different yeah. services, but I'm interested in your, your take on that. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great question, Mark. Um, so we, right now, the waivers will stay in effect through initially what was the end of the PHE or through the end of this year. And now with the surge in Delta cases and, you know, some of the additional challenges that have come this summer and this fall, you know, it, it's, it's not, there's been no further expansion beyond the, the deadline, which is at the end of this year, but that's not to say that there may be some ease of the regulatory restrictions given the current state of affairs and, and where we are with the pandemic. Um, I think everyone had hoped that we would be, you know, past it by now, but unfortunately, we're, we're really not. Um, so I think one of the challenges of, um, you know, expanding the use of telehealth after the PHE and, and the expiration of the waivers really relates to the current regulatory scheme and what many um, practitioners refer to as the regulatory burdens. And so it's been really interesting because over the past several years, the HHS, OIG, and the DOJ have really highly scrutinized telehealth arrangements. And it's because of, of some of these types of arrangements that HHS added Medicare Part B telehealth audits to its work plan for January through March of this past year. So this addition really demonstrates the, the concern or continued concern about potential fraud and abuse associated with telehealth and the various telehealth arrangements. And what the waivers did was loosened a lot of the regulatory red tape, so to speak. But at the same time, you know, the government is also concerned that there is the potential for fraud and abuse in this space. And so, interestingly, in late February of this year, the principal deputy, deputy director of the OIG stated in an open letter that basically the OIG recognized the importance of telehealth and other digital health technologies for improving care coordination and health outcomes, um, but that they also wanted to make sure that um, any new policies and technologies that have the potential to improve care and enhance convenience could achieve those goals without being compromised by fraud, abuse, or misuse. So to that point, it's not as easy as perhaps we'd like to think in terms of lifting or removing some of the regulatory issues surrounding telehealth services and those that were employed during the, the public health emergency. Um, I think telehealth can continue to be used in the future consistent with some of the waivers to facilitate access to care and improve continuity of care. But depending on, you know, some of the regulatory concerns, you know, we may not see it expanded on such a broad base as what we're seeing during the, the PHE. That's interesting. Do you know if anybody's studying either outcomes or quality of care differential between kind of the in-person care and telehealth? Because I imagine that's something policy folks are going to be trying to look at. We've kind of had this forced experiment where telehealth has been the, the primary mode. Any, anything happening on that front? Yeah, I think Tony and I will definitely talk a little bit about that when we get to some of the new um, 
the new changes that the Biden administration is looking to make. And this might be a good segue into that. Yeah, yeah, yeah there are lots of, um, I know that American Medical Association is doing some, um, some state agencies are doing some, the federal government obviously is, because, you know, everybody's sort of asking the question you did, Mark, what happens when these waivers expire and what sorts of things should be in place and should not be in place. I know some of these things that we are so thankful for um, that are allowed under the waiver will require congressional action. So it's not just sort of an agency ruling like to expand the providers and expand the patient location. Those sorts of things actually require um, congressional action. So, you know, we're always saying go to your Congress people, but really go to your Congress people <laughs> um, when, um, when thinking about the expansion of, um, of these waivers. Yeah, and to that point too, you know, um, some states just have already made some changes to their state licensure rules. And there is a, um, you know, in terms of accessibility to certain types of specialists and, you know, services, you know, some states like Florida have actually created a, a, you know, very specific telehealth license, which allows for out-of-state providers to become licensed in that state just to provide telehealth services. And so that's an interesting concept that maybe, or hopefully we'll see other states adopt, or at least some type of uniform, you know, medical licensing compact. And that really gets into not so much dealing with like some of the things that Tony said about place of service restrictions, but it really could help create more of a solution to the lack of certain specialists in certain areas, or even just, you know, with people being so mobile, continuity of, of care from one location to another, because right now, prior to the PHE, and to some extent, you know, some states are, are very, very strict about whether providers can provide telehealth services across state lines, even if even to establish patients. And so it's difficult. Yeah, and I think that's a great point just in, that you make that we need to remind our listeners of, which is you really have you have a state regulatory scheme about what people can do, what it means to practice medicine, what you need to get licensed for. But then we've got this big federal scheme of reimbursement and the Medicaid and Medicare programs and rules around what kind of things can get reimbursed. And obviously, even private insurance carriers are often looking to the Medicaid rules and defining their own things. So, so it's a complicated issue, both around what can legally be done uh, from a licensure standpoint, but also what you're going to get reimbursed for and what's going to comply with the various federal rulings. So it's a, it's a complicated situation. Tony, what what is the, I know the Biden administration has generally spoken in favor of telehealth. What kind of things are they looking at? I know there's talk about, you know, doing it as part of the infrastructure bill or other legislation. Um, I know we did a poll right before the podcast asking people how they thought the Biden administration plan could best encourage expansion. And the overwhelming response was decreasing the regulatory burdens. And you've talked about some of those burdens here, but I'm interested in what you, what you see may be coming at the federal level. And Alyssa, of course, after Tony, I'll get your thoughts on that as well. Yeah, interestingly enough, they have not yet opined on whether they will reduce the regulatory burden, aka, I mean, also basically keep some of these waivers or slightly alter some of the waivers. But I suspect that's coming down the pike. But the Biden administration has been busy in August of this year. 
They announced an investment of over $19 million to expand telehealth nationwide, but especially focusing on rural and underserved communities. So basically, the Health Resources and Services Administration, HRSA, awarded this $19 million to 36 recipients across five particular groups. Um, I'm going to go through sort of the first three, and Alyssa will take the last two. Um, the first one is to telehealth technology-enabled learning programs. Um, these types of programs were given $4.28 million, and that was given over nine healthcare organizations basically to build a sustainable telementoring program and networks in rural and medically underserved communities. Um, these nine organizations included academic medical centers, research institutes, uh, community health centers, and basically will help specialists and other providers provide training and support to primary caregivers, um, specifically in rural and underserved areas, again, and to help treat patients with these, you know, complex conditions, you know, such as uh, substance abuse disorders and, you know, the, the COVID long haul. Um, the second type, uh, well, second and third type are telehealth resource centers. We've got regional telehealth resource centers um, and national telehealth resource centers. Uh, these entities were given a combined uh, 4.5 million um, rewarded across 12 regional and two national TRCs. Uh, the regional ones were given in Alaska Native Tribal Health Consortium and the Public Health Institute. In the nationals, uh, the TRC ranged from places, they gave them to TRCs in um, Arizona, Arkansas, California, Hawaii, Texas, Utah, et cetera. Um, but TRCs basically are there to provide information and assistance and education on telehealth to organizations and individuals who are currently providing telehealth services or want to get into the business of providing telehealth services to patients. They're going to offer such things as resources on um, reimbursement, uh, licensing, uh, privacy, and can even offer uh, telehealth technology, equipment, cybersecurity, integration, and such. Um, so the administration, at least, has given a nod like Alyssa has said, in terms of what the OIG is saying, the HHS is saying, um, through this plan and, of course, the infrastructure plan um, that has some telehealth aspects to that, that they do realize that telehealth going forward is an important part of our healthcare system. Yeah, and just to expound on some of the other initiatives that are part of this injection of money by the, the Biden administration, um, the administration's also awarded $3.58 million to 11 organizations for what's called evidence-based direct-to-consumer telehealth network programs. And the purpose of those is to increase access to telehealth services and to assess the effectiveness of telehealth care for providers, patients, and payers. And so the goal there would be to expand telehealth access in primary care, acute care, and behavioral health care. And the direct-to-consumer piece is, um, is pretty important because it really bypasses some of the, um, right now with the place of service restrictions and in some circumstances requiring a distant site provider be present. And so we'll see how that shakes out and, and whether that's truly 
the intent of how the direct-to-consumer networks will, will play out. Um, the fourth initiative is the creation of telehealth centers of excellence programs. And this includes a $6.5 million reward to two organizations to assess uh, telehealth strategies and services and to improve healthcare in rural and medically underserved areas that have high incidence of chronic disease and high poverty rates. Um, the centers of excellence are going to be located at academical, academic medical centers um, and will serve as hubs to pilot new telehealth services, track outcomes, and publish telehealth resource. Um, interestingly enough, our own uh, Medical University of South Carolina here in Charleston is one of the two recipients of um, the award for telehealth centers of excellence programs. So that's pretty exciting. Um, and funding for this funding for telehealth versus actual reimbursement are, I'm just going to say this quickly, are two very different concepts. And so you know, when you think about reimbursement, how do the providers, how are providers paid for the service versus how do they build the infrastructure to even provide the service? And so this award money is exciting because it really provides funding for the development and growth of, of the actual structure, allowing organizations and providers to help build the structure. Gotcha. Now that's helpful. That, that, that's helpful information. You know, one thing I'm reminded of, I know rural providers in particular face a lot of challenges now and maybe relying more on telehealth than their counterparts in urban areas. I wonder what the rural versus urban issues are and how folks are trying to address those challenges in communities, particularly those out in more rural areas and, and things they may be looking at. Yeah. Yeah. And I know Tony and I both have I have some thoughts on this, but you know, add to broadband internet is a huge issue in rural communities and not just broadband, but even just the equipment. And so we assume that just because telehealth is available that everyone can use it and and that's simply just not not the case. And so you know, there's a real issue with while there's the importance of expanding the types of services that are available, it's also critical to ensure that the people in most need of the services can actually access them through viable internet and technology and resources. And then there's also, you know, the importance of um, improving patient education and patient access to the types of services in rural and underserved areas. So that would be, you know, patient education about what the service is, how to use the equipment, how to access the internet, how to um, get them to view telehealth as a viable option as opposed to an in-person visit. So those are some of the, you know, some of the challenges that we're seeing. But Tony may have some additional thoughts there. And before you go, Tony, too, let me just remind listeners, there is money in the current infrastructure bill, um, which, again, has to go through final passage. It was passed by the Senate going back to the House. We did a full podcast with uh, my partner, Carrie Bennett, talking about rural broadband and how that's going to play out. So if you're interested in that, which is clearly a key part of telehealth, I encourage you to listen to that episode. But, Tony, what are, any other thoughts on this, the rural uh, providers in particular? Yeah, yeah. In addition to sort of the expansion of the broadband care, um, the infrastructure bill also has an expansion of uh, Medicare payments for telehealth, especially to mental health, um, for mental health visits that are provided in a rural health clinic or a federally qualified health center. I think a lot of 
The literature coming out of the pandemic shows that the need for mental health services is greatly increased. Um, and telehealth is just, you know, just a very easy platform. Um, I don't want to say easy in that it doesn't have its challenges, but it, it is a good platform for mental health care. Um, it's not perfect for every specialty, but um, mental health seems to be one that it's really good for. And, you know, Mark, to come back to your question about who is studying these effects, I know the National Institute of Health, the NIH, is having a workshop in October and it's invited a, a large amount of stakeholders um, from the federal government research community and others uh, basically to talk about what they have been studying, assess the evidence that they have, identify you know any gaps, and of course, plan for um, a path forward for, for telehealth. Yeah, that's great. I mean, I'm glad to hear that they've put the money and the and the effort underway to analyze that. I imagine that's going to guide policy going forward. Um, I didn't want to leave without talking a little more about reimbursement. We talked a little bit about the, the waivers at the beginning, but obviously for providers, making sure you're getting paid for these services is uh, front and center of a lot of their questions. I'm interested in what you guys see as, as some of the latest developments on that reimbursement front. What are people looking at um, and what's kind of on the horizon there? Alyssa, any, any thoughts? I'll let you start and then we'll let Tony add in. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Mark. Um, so interestingly enough, this um, past July and mid-July, the 2022 proposed physician fee schedule was released. And through that fee schedule, so this is published every year, and for the past several years, we've seen slight expansions of telehealth services. And this year, there's actually, CMS is actually proposing to extend coverage for certain Medicare telehealth services through calendar year 2023 or even permanently, including this for the behavioral health, mental health services delivered to patients in their homes and um, via audio only technology. And, you know, like Tony said, the mental health services are really probably one of the most significant um, additions. And the reason being that, you know, studies have shown that over a third of the population live in areas lacking mental health providers. There's a real shortage of providers in this country in that space. Um, there's also just a general, you know, I think as a society, we've become more open to receiving mental health treatment. There is still some reluctance to seek out care. And so this idea, because of stigmatization and, and those kinds of things. And so the fact that the 2022 physician fee schedule is actually proposing to add reimbursement for telehealth services for mental health treatment in a patient's home. So the, the, um, the eligible origination site can be a patient's home when the treatment or the services for the purpose of diagnosis, evaluation, or treatment of a mental health disorder is huge because it basically cuts down um, barriers to, you know, finding providers to waiting for excessive amounts of time um, to have an appointment with those providers and even just sort of strips down the barrier of seeking out care in general. And so another interesting change, and this is in response to the opioid epidemic, is that um, CMS is also proposing that the home be an eligible originating site for services provided to a patient with a substance use disorder. Oftentimes we're seeing 
patients, again, lack of qualified providers in various areas, and then also traveling across state lines to or far distances to receive care for those types of services. And then sometimes because it's so difficult to um, get the care that you need, the continuity of care suffers, I think. And so this is a really important um you know, these are two really important additions to the physician fee schedule that could really improve access to certain types of care. You know, they're looking at intervals of time in terms of, you know, should a patient be seen in person by through a non-telehealth service prior to a certain period of time um, of the telehealth service. And right now, CMS is asking for comment on those time intervals. Um, another point that I'll make is some of the services that we discussed earlier that were added during the PHE, like emergency department visits and home health care visits for established patients. Those are considered right now um, what CMS calls Category 3 services. So those mean um, services that likely have a clinical benefit when furnished via telehealth, but they lack sufficient evidence to support permanent coverage. So CMS has added through the end of 2023, through this proposed fee schedule, certain Category 3 services like home visits, ER visits, nursing facility discharge day management visits. And during this time frame, they're going to really look at whether there is sufficient evidence to support permanent coverage for those types of services. So there's some pretty good changes in the works. Yeah, those are those are big and exciting. Um, I appreciate you mentioning those, and and obviously the mental health area, you know, both the high need and high demand, uh, and the fact that it's less dependent on some kind of physical examination, you know, or other uh, some some other conditions that might need actual inspection of a physical condition seems to be one that really is well suited for telehealth. So it's exciting to hear about that potential expansion area. Tony, anything else you see uh, new or different coming uh, coming down the pike on the reimbursement stage? Yeah, yeah. You know, reimbursement is sort of, you know, critical because nobody's going to want to provide these services unless they're getting paid for them or unless they're not to patients cost prohibitive. Um, you know, policymakers in both, you know, Alyssa's talked a lot about some of the federal, but both federal and state have to look at these issues because, a lot of the waivers that are currently in place, well, not call them waivers or exceptions, uh, also came through state agencies, through executive orders and legislation and other agency actions. Um, according to the Commonwealth Fund, about 22 states had to actually change their laws or policies to ensure, you know, coverage for things like Medicaid, um, audio-only services, or things like waiving cost sharing or requiring cost sharing, no higher than identical in-person services for telehealth services, or even requiring reimbursement that's on par with in-person reimbursement. These are the sort of things that I think, um, you know, both our federal and uh, state agencies are currently thinking about and tackling, and even the private interns. Um, you know, I was all for telehealth, parity, but then, you know, I had someone raise the issue of in the reimbursement for in-person visits is the overhead that, you know, physicians in a physician office or a healthcare system has to incur. Do you incur that same amount of overhead through a telehealth visit? I mean, one can say yes, based on the technology you're using, one can say no. So these are 
complicated questions that have to be answered. There also, of course, you know, Alyssa said, Alyssa mentioned sort of the fraud and abuse issue. Um, one issue that's come up is, you know, if I call a doctor and I'm telling them what's going on and we're on the phone for, you know, five minutes or so, and they're billing that as a visit, as a telehealth visit. However, if I did that in person, that's not a, that's not a billable visit. So now I think uh, CMS has introduced a new code that says it's got to be between 11 and 20 minutes <laughs> long. Um, so, you know, there, there are issues with everything that's new, that's a little different, that has to be, you know, considered. But, you know, telehealth is here to stay, right? I mean, we had it before. It's increased a whole lot. It seems to be leveling off as part of our delivery system. And I think it's going to be important for us to decide how telehealth and in-person care can be combined to basically maximize optimal healthcare outcomes for our patients. Um, one part that's sad is, you know, although telehealth does help with healthcare disparity, it also has on some level widened it because we've noticed low rates of usage in high poverty areas, in areas where there's low English proficiency, which of course is just, you know, exasperating that that health inequity, um, you know, we need help with the telehealth platforms in terms of how stringent those privacy and security recommendations or uh, requirements are going to need to be. But, you know, all in all, uh, if there is one thing that the pandemic has taught us is, you know, telehealth certainly is a viable option, perhaps not by itself. I mean, there are just some things that you can't do through telehealth. But it probably is a way to have a more efficient, equal uh, healthcare system. That's great. Thank you, Tony. Alyssa, anything else you wanted to add? I know we're about out of time, but any final thoughts for our listeners before we wrap up? I, I really, you know, just want to echo quickly what Tony said about, you know, working to improve some of the disparities that we know exist in our healthcare system. And I think this has been a positive opportunity to try to close the gap with some of those. And I think we'll see that through some of the funding and reimbursement that's on the horizon. Um, but otherwise, you know, I think it's an exciting time and um, a lot of changes coming. I'm sure we'll, we'll see more as things play out. But all in all, you know, thanks for having us, Mark. We really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you and your listeners about this this topic. Well, absolutely. Now, thank you to both of you. You know, healthcare is such a complex, highly regulated, difficult area. We're lucky to have two titans of healthcare law in Tony Peck and Alyssa Fleming joining us today. Uh, they've got a lot of expertise. I know a lot of our healthcare clients are calling on them every day to tackle these complicated regulatory uh, schedules. And I know how busy you both are. So thanks for taking some time uh, to share insights with our listeners. And really, telehealth is a big part of the future of medicine. So I think we've, we've covered a lot of that. And I appreciate you sharing the insight and giving us a look at what may be coming down the pike. I want to remind our listeners, uh, you can find this and other episodes of the In-House Roundhouse on our website, WombleBondDickinson.com. In particular, we have a special section on the impact economy, which will include both podcasts and written summaries of the various topics. Please do subscribe to the website. You can do that on iTunes, Google Play Store, SoundCloud, or wherever you're listening to this podcast. We appreciate your subscription and reviews. 
Thanks, everyone, for listening. This has been the In-House Roundhouse. See you at the next station.